Welcome to what is the 50th edition of History Now and today's show we're just going to go a bit outside the comfort zone. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome Dr Eric Morier-Genoux from Queen's University Belfast who's going to be talking to us about his new book. You're very welcome Eric. The title of your book, we've got it here in front of us, Catholicism in the Making of Politics in Central Mozambique from 1940 to 86. So why is 1940 to 1986 an important era in Mozambique? Maybe starting to say that the book is doing two things. Um, one is a case study of the Catholic Church, um, that is um, trying to understand how the Catholic Church functions in general. And this is a case study of the Church in Mozambique. So I took Mozambique as a case to study a general problem of the Catholic Church. What I was interested in is understanding how the hierarchy relates to religious orders and how the two articulate and work together to produce politics in Mozambique. Um, so that's a general view of the book. Um, the case study is about Mozambique, and Mozambique is a particular place uh, which uh, I presume quite a few viewers might not know about. Um, and here um, it is the case study, but it is particular, so I'm looking there at the history of the church in Mozambique. And I took the period 1940-1986 um, because it is one coherent whole where relation between the hierarchy um, and uh, the religious orders and between the church and the state were fairly stable. Um, and 1940 is a very important turning point in church-state relation. On the one hand, uh, the Vatican and the Portuguese state, which was the colonial state in Mozambique, signed a concordat, uh, an international agreement, where they agreed on how ch um, church-state relation would operate and how the church could um, operate in Mozambique and in Angola and other places. Um, so that um, established basically a framework under which the church could operate. And 1940 is also the date that dioceses were created in Mozambique. Mozambique before 1940 was a single prelacy with uh, one single archbishop, a prelate as a matter of fact. Um, and the diocese is created uh, in Beira and a bishop is nominated. So it is a shift in the way it's organised and dioceses are seen as a modern structure, structuring if you want, of the Catholic Church. So that was the beginning of a new period which I started to study. Um, and then it goes basically for the colonial period up to 1975, uh, which is the period of independence. And during this whole period, politics changed, the church uh, grows, but as I say, the period was very stable. In 1975, there's independence after a liberation struggle, which lasted 10 years and things shift precisely. So I could have stopped in 1975 and looked just at a colonial period, but I was curious to see how things changed after independence. So I carried on for another 10 years to see whether what I found about the colonial period was confirmed or totally reversed after independence. So in your book, you've mentioned that it is a multidisciplinary approach. Can you tell us what you mean by that? In part, I suppose it has to do with my own training, which is um, in several disciplines. I did political science, I did sociology, and then uh, history as well. So I drew on the three disciplines, which is different methods, different approach. Um, political science and sociology tend to be more interested in theories and concepts. Um, the sociology of religion is particularly strong, so I drew quite a lot from that discipline to understand how the church works. I drew a lot, for example, and I might come back to that later, on how to understand the Catholic Church, drawing from Max Weber, who's a famous uh, sociologist of religion, um, others as well. 
Uh, political science is a good one, needless to say, to look at politics. And history is largely about, I suppose, looking in long-term change, continuities, um, and then working in archive. I've worked in archive always, and most um, scholars, colleagues, uh, always thought I was a historian. Uh, but I think I'm a bit of a mix in a way, and I think the book reflects that um, on purpose. I think there's advantages in, in drawing different disciplines, particularly when you're looking, at, for example, on the topic of religion. I think the sociology of religion is very strong and very useful. Um, so that, that's how I used, I suppose, concepts from different disciplines, different approaches, different methods. Um, and that produced a book which is historical, but enriched by a different element from other disciplines. How long have you been researching this book until publication? Ooh, the idea came to me in 1995, if I'm not mistaken. And then I did a PhD, um, which I defended in 2005. So that's 10 years of research, I suppose. And then I was not very happy with the outcome of the dissertation, so I decided to uh, revisit. And then I managed to get access to the archive of the diocese, which I hadn't. So I did a lot more interviews. I did um, uh, work in new archives. And then I rewrote, oh, probably more than half of the book. So I did chapters, changed chapters, and I rewrote the book. Um, maybe not a good strategy in terms of academic promotion, etc. but I'm very happy with the final product. I was not so happy with the thesis per se. I think there was some mistake maybe in designs um, that I found. And these things which were a bit complicated to do. I did a lot of statistics, for example, of the conversion and the rates of conversion. So I have fancy maps about um, the rates of conversion in different places and then investigated why there were differences, etc., which took me a lot of time, but I'm very happy with the outcome. Um, so there's advantages to taking a long time. Um, you get a richer record, you have more time to reflect on it. Um, so delighted, but a very long time indeed. Church, Catholic Church historiography. There has been trends in the past of a very top-down approach. Yours is different in some ways that you have a, a bottom-up approach. Um, would that be right in saying, and was that intended going into this? I, I did read a lot of material. I, I, my understanding would be to say that there's kind of two big traditions. The one is top-down um, view of the Catholic Church and its history. So you're looking at the Pope and bishops and how decision taken in Rome and the Vatican trickle down and were passed on to be applied on the ground. Um, and there's a uh, uh, lot of works. Um, Rees, for example, did a beautiful study of the Vatican and how decisions are taken there, implicit saying that once they're taken, they're being applied elsewhere. Um, there was quite a lot of um, contestation of this approach, and I think particularly in relation to liberation theology studies in, in Latin America, saying, well, you need to study the church from the bottom up and look at communities and how politics or decision are made, theology is made, and how it trickles up, as a matter of fact. And my interest in the Diocese of Bayera was neither of those two topics. What I was really interested in is the diversity of the church in Bayera. Um, I came to the topic because uh, the historiography in Mozambique was looking, or made that argument in the 1980s, that the Protestant churches had been in favor of liberation struggle. They were kind of progressive churches and Catholic would have been fascist. Um, but the Diocese of Beira didn't work. The bishop was fairly progressive. And then if you look into it, some priests were conservatives, some were liberation theologists, some were 
nationalist anti-communist and it was very difficult to make sense it seemed to be difficult to say that the church was this or that and i discovered uh, out of my research that in reality much of that diversity not only in politics but in theology in pastoral work in ideas culture all sorts of aspects of the church was really um could be unpacked if you want could be understood by looking at religious congregation it tends to be the Jesuit doing certain things, Franciscan doing things in a particular way, and White Fathers, etc. Different congregation do things in particular ways, which is about theology, which is about um, the national makeup, the um, charisma, as you call it, of the congregation. Um, so I started looking at this, and then I realized, well, that doesn't fit into either the bottom up or the uh, or the top-down. So I developed what I argue is a horizontal approach. Um, some authors had referred to that, but I think nobody uh, analyzed it. There's a lot of studies of religious congregation, but not how religious congregations shape the church um, and relate to the, to, um, the hierarchy. Um, and I found in Max Weber, that sociologist I was telling you about, elements to kind of develop a theory. He has a very interesting um, uh, theory about the Catholic Church being peculiar in that um, in the Protestant world um, you have prophetic movement merging and they tend to secede from Protestant churches whereas in the Catholic Church you have the same movement charismatic movement as Weber calls them but the church tries to keep them in the institution doesn't allow them to secede to split off into sect uh, it allows them to become a religious congregation or religious orders um, and give them autonomy so you have this uh, horizontal and this uh, vertical structure both at the same time. And Weber says, well, there's an issue there. And I try to push the argument further to try to explain how that tension defines very often how the church positions itself uh, in complicated ways, in very um, subtle ways, which sometimes may be seen only as just politicking, if you want, by the Vatican. But in fact, there's different forces. And it, towards the end of the book, I look at how the question of the Diocese of Beira is actually discussed in Rome between religious congregation, the Secretariat of State and the Pope, and they have a discussion, what should we do? And the Pope says, okay, well, you won't do this, but I also need to take into consideration other bishops and secular clergy who don't belong to religious orders, and I need to balance different forces. And you see basically the game within the Vatican, game in a, in a positive way, the, the, the uh, interaction and the articulation playing out in, in rather sophisticated ways. So to answer your question, yes, I would say horizontal. It's not very elegant, um, but it does, uh, I think, cut through, and that's the idea. And I think the advantage of it, it explains very often things which may seem contradictory. Sometimes you read it as a conspiration. There's a lot of uh, argument of that sort. But in fact, very often the, the Jesuits disagree with others or with the hierarchy and they go their own way and they have the autonomy very often to do so. So I think it explains a lot of the diversity in the church, which I think often is underrated. This, this idea of the church is very hierarchical. It is, but at the same time, it is very diverse and horizontal. Really interesting thing in the background here in this, in this work is the Catholic Church's relationship with the Portuguese state. And you've mentioned that in the, in the 1940 Concordat. What does that mean for the Catholic Church in Mozambique? Uh, is it, you know, attached to the Portuguese, you know, um, imperial uh, project in that way? It certainly was. Um, the story of the church, Catholic church in Mozambique is a long one. Um, they, they arrived 
so it's called officially in 1498 with Vasco da Gama who goes to India and they stop over at the island of Mozambique and they set up a first church and then it grows and it goes, this kind of ebb and flows. The 19th century, there's a huge crisis um, due largely um, to the situation in Portugal, which is uh, uh, very anti-clerical. Um, and the church picks up in the late 19th century at the same time as Portugal um, joins into the partition of Africa and tries to establish its own colonies. And the state at that point um, starts rebuilding its relation with the Catholic Church um, to secure different territories in Africa. So it'll be Mozambique and Angola being the main uh, uh, colonies. And there was hope on the part of Portuguese to actually cut across from Mozambique to Angola and get a, a section of third, probably, of Africa um, under the belt. But the British uh, cut through because they aimed to go from Cairo to Cape Town. Um, and the British had more clout. And there's a, an event at the end of the 19th century where they clash, and the key player during the clash is actually the White Fathers, uh, who the Portuguese used to place in a, in a key position, um, but the British eventually win and the White Father withdraw. So, so the church is used by um, the, the, the um, Portuguese state for its imperial construction. Um, there's a difference between the Portuguese presence in Africa from the 15th century with the great discoveries to the territorial um, colonialism of the 19th century where they occupy territory and build administration, which is not the case before. Um, and during the 20th century, it is the same story of church and state working hand in hand. Um, and the church is participant in that venture. They are aiming at helping the Portuguese in imperial power because, they, because the Portuguese give guarantees to the church and they think that building the empire will build Catholicism in the same, uh, in the same way. Um, so that Concordat, for example, is an agreement between church and state, between Vatican and uh, Lisbon, um, but there is then attached to it a missionary agreement which regulates very precisely how the church can operate in the colonies. And it is literally um, while the Concordat established a separation between church and state in Portugal, in the colonies it's largely emerging. Um, so all bishops have to be Portuguese and they're all going to be very nationalist. Um, there's all sorts of rules and regulation as to what the church can do and not do. Um, and in exchange, the Portuguese states give all education and all health to the Catholic Church So they go, uh, in relation to Africans. So they're going to have a fantastic opportunity to build facilities sponsored financially by the state um, and given exclusivity over the territory to build a Catholicism and they're going to be quite successful in that. One of the people who, who features quite large in this study is the Archbishop of Beira, uh, Dom Sebastio. You've mentioned there previously he was quite progressive. What, uh, you know, what did that lead to, his progressiveness in a, you know, um, uh, maybe a conservative arm of the Portuguese empire? Um, Dom Sebastião Soares de Rezen, so the Portuguese uh, name, and um, he's, I um, studied him in the archive and then I had the chance to read all of his diaries. So since the day he arrived in Mozambique to the day he died, he kept a diary writing every day an entry as to what he was doing. Um, he was quite aware of what he was writing, um, and partly it's also about writing to remember what he did. Um, but that means I read 20, 30 diaries of his. 
Um, and he is a fascinating uh, bishop. He started a very classic bishop. Um, he's not different from the other bishop in Portugal. He comes from the same milieu. He had the same education, same training in Rome, in the same college, Jesuit college. Um, he, uh, universities, that is, sorry. Uh, and he was quite conservative and quite nationalist to start with. But he came from a generation which was just after the first republic in Portugal. Um, that's when he did his studies, which the first republic in Portugal was very anti-clerical. And as a result, he was um, traumatized. Um, and he had therefore a very militant view of the Catholic Church. And he was very proactive and really um, uh, uh, a very dynamic bishop. He arrives in Mozambique very motivated, very pro-Vatican rather than nationalist, so it's a mixture between being nationalist and being for the church before nationalism. And what he experiences in Mozambique is quite tough. In 1914, Mozambique still saw a lot of forced labor, uh, which at some point in his diary says it, it's no different from slavery. Um, Africans are, are uh, mistreated regularly, forced labor exists, the conditions are tough, and he's going to slowly, over probably 10, 15 years, a gradually um, uh, slide, if I can say, towards kind of a liberal position saying, well, we need to reform this colonialism, which is not sustainable. Uh, from the, uh, the mid-1950s, the church also changes. We are in the years in preparation of Vatican II, and he changes further. And by 1962, he makes a decision which he keeps to himself, but thinking that actually independence will be necessary. There is no way we can reform colonialism, so we need to prepare for independence. He keeps that to himself. It's in his diary, uh, but he goes on to support um, the training of Africans. He supports missionaries who support nationalism. He supports the other side as well. He, that's, I think, his... Um, singularity. He actually supported anybody who worked for the church. So not only the missionaries he liked, but also the missionaries he may not like so much. As long as you did your work for the church, he would support you. But he went quite far in protecting some African um, cleric, for example, who got embroiled in politics very severely and the, ch the secret police wanted to put him in prison and he covered him for years. Um, and another priest who was um, associated to that story. Um, so he went quite far, and before he uh, passed away, he really thought that independence was needed, and he then became more and more um, progressive in a way. Um, in, in a funny way, in the sense that he kept it secret, um, but, but it's quite clear if you read his diary. And within the College of Bishop in Mozambique, even if you take Angola, of the colonial bishop, I suppose, he was probably one of the most progressive of his generation. Um, in the 60s, new bishops are nominated, not least uh, his substitute, uh, some of whom are very conservative, since they all have to be Portuguese and the Portugal state has a say in their nomination. Uh, but some of them are even more progressive. It's a new generation, younger, more influenced by Vatican II, and the situation is going to change further. But within his generation, he was quite unique, and unique, I suppose, in his politics. But I think that's really important. It's not just about politics. It's also about the way he managed his diocese. Um, trying to push forward an agenda um, which is open, um, which is transformative. And he's very fondly um, remembered in Mozambique by all congregation, interestingly, and by all believers. And he's one probably of the uh, best remembered uh, bishop in Mozambique at this point. Yes, you, you've mentioned there about uh, clergy had to be of Portuguese, but uh, this archbishop um, brought in African. Um, clergy. 
Can you tell us here, because there's, there's a couple of chapters in your book, one on the Imperial Church, but then the African Church. Can you give us a bit of background on how that sort of comes about? The Portuguese state wanted only Portuguese missionaries, ideally, but Portugal is a small country and the population was very small, so the clergy uh, was not sufficient to actually um, uh, send enough missionaries to all the, the um, colonies. They had the African colonies, they had Timor, there was a lot of territory to be covered. So the state put in that concordant missionary agreement that in exceptional circumstances when you couldn't find a Portuguese missionary you could have foreign missionaries come in. Uh, but they tried to regulate it and the Bishop of Beira was didn't really care about nationalism in that sense, as long as people work for the church. So he tried to get any congregation he could. And just after the Second World War, the um, Portuguese state um, stopped him um, and prevented him from uh, bringing more foreign uh, missionaries. And they were particularly worried about the Dutch, the German, the Italian. Um, Portugal was very nationalist and they reckoned, um, the government was, um, and they reckoned that uh, these three countries had just lost their colonies and they would probably be very jealous of the Portuguese success. Um, so they barred any of these nationalities coming into Mozambique and the bishop went to Lisbon and tried to negotiate and he did quite successfully. So that's one of the, the story. The other story is about the formation, the education of an African clergy. And the bishop arrives and um, like I think all bishops was very concerned about um, founding a seminary. There was one which was um, the Franciscan seminary, which he thought was not sufficient and he wanted the diocesan seminary. Um, so he managed to get the Franciscan seminary closed and he opened a new one where um, African um, priests were trained. Um, like all seminaries, the rate of um, men going in and numbers of priests uh, uh, nominated at the end is very low. I think it's one to a thousand, if I remember correctly. Um, but they did train a new generation. It started later, which I think has a lot to do with the history of the church in Portugal and in Mozambique. But basically, from the early 1960s, you have a new generation of African priests coming in. Um, in the whole of Mozambique and in, in central Mozambique, in the diocese I'm looking at, so we're talking of maybe 10, 15 priests. Um, it happens at the moment when the liberation struggle starts, when nationalism becomes very strong, and that is going to create a lot of interference within the priests. Some are going to flee, some are going to be sent abroad to protect them. Uh, so quite a complicated story there. Uh, but the bishop was very eager. Um, it should say that the Vatican had instruction from the beginning of the, uh, beginning of the 20th century, saying that uh, the foundation of seminaries and the training of local clergy in Africa and Asia elsewhere was a priority. Um, so it was a drive, a very strong one, and it started a bit long later in, in this particular uh, colony, but it did happen. And this is basically the generation of priests who are going to take over the church after independence. When we're getting into the 1960s, you have the rise in uh, nationalism in, in Mozambique. Ultimately, this leads to a liberation struggle. Firstly, what was the church's role? I know it's complicated. It's probably uh, you need a program just on that section alone. But the church in the, you know, the sort of the revolutionary period, and then how did it cope after independence? What, what, in what way did it change? The question of African nationalism is, is quite a complicated 
one in a way, in the sense that the church being very Portuguese, because of this agreement, the bishops were all Portuguese, they were very conservative and an overwhelming majority. Um, so when the first signs of nationalism um, were seen in the seminaries, that's where it started really worrying them, um, they took decision to try to keep it in check, um, get rid of these um, uh, seminarians who showed tendencies towards nationalism. They got rid of all the foreign priests who were training these uh, priests uh, in the seminaries and substituted them with Portuguese uh, priests to make sure they would get a proper national, uh, Portuguese national education. Uh, by doing so, that created an even more problem because, of course, all the countries around, not all, but quite a few countries in Africa were becoming independent in the 1960s, this big year of independence. And as much as you may want uh, Mozambique to be isolated, it wasn't possible to isolate it totally. So of course, um, the seminarians followed what was happening and nationalism was happening. And once you try to prevent it and close it and prevent the debate, um, then you started getting sentiments of rebellion. So some, quite a lot of seminarians, both in major seminarians and a minor seminary, fled. Some fled to study abroad and some fled to liberation struggle and joined the, the fighting. The lib main liberation struggle movement tended to go more and more towards um, socialism. And these uh, priests-to-be or, or ex-seminarians were unhappy um, and one priest, Father Guanjeri, arrived in liberation struggle and started stirring that um, issue. Not stirring, but he was used and encouraged to intervene as he had a lot of prestige. Um, so that, that led to a session within the liberation movement, which was not faith-based, but which had socially, it was a makeup between men who were mostly from the center of the country, which had a particular background and particular vision. Um, and they were largely seminarians. So that was a big of a traumatic moment for the liberation movement. When independence happens, um, the liberation struggle movement, Fulimo as it was called, arrive in power and it is very anti-religious. Uh, partly, I believe, because of that experience of uh, uh, fighting between these two elites, if I can say. Um, and in 1975-76, very quickly, the government not only engaged in socialist roads by nationalizing school, education, hospitals, but by 1977 it started attacking religions, closing uh, churches, limiting what um, priest and bishop could do, also Protestant, also Islam, there's a 20% of the population in Mozambique which is Muslim, and it tried to control, uh, well, prevent, and it even went as far as teaching atheism at the national radio. Um, so there was a huge clash between 77 and 1980 between the church and uh, the state, or religion and the state. From 1981, things change. Um, the state decided that repression was not very effective either. Um, so then they tried to control uh, all religion by organizing and doing all sorts of um, techniques to, to um, manage them, I suppose. The Vatican um, withdraws all these colonial bishops and nominates these African priests who stayed behind into the position of bishop and the whole church is being reorganized. It's reorganized to make it more African on the one hand, but it's also reorganized in view of this revolutionary onslaught into religion. Um, so they, they develop, for example, all these um, base communities, liberation struggle technique to better resist the assault by the state. Um, then there's a war which starts, a civil war starts at the end of the 70s 
And that um, reinforces the idea of working through communities rather than having missions and big institutions. The church changes in that sense quite significantly um, by becoming less institutional, more African. Um, but at the same time, and that was the question you asked at the beginning, while it changes radically, and I think that's um, why I chose 1986, I think by 1986 the church has really changed into a new uh, institution. But there's a series of elements which, of course, continue from the colonial period. So they all speak Portuguese, which was a, a decision by um, the states. Um, it was a revolution, but it would be a revolution in Portuguese, the colonial language. There's um, a good reason for that. Um, but there's a series of continuation and the connection to Portugal for the Catholic Church continued very strong and still is to this day. So it is a new church. It's not a neo-colonial church, but the element of that imperial church, are, some of them are still there. And it's a new institution, which is particularly, I suppose that was one of the arguments I make in the book. It's a specific model of church, which has to do with the history um, it had with the makeup of the church, the fact that some priests leave, some stay, who stays, who gets into position. So a new institution of a Mozambican church, although they it is all the same one church, but it has some Mozambican flavors to it. And one of the flavors of Mozambican church is to speak in Portuguese, for example. Eric, it is a really fascinating topic that I wasn't aware of before I started reading the book. I would highly recommend it. It's very, really interesting study of how society changes over time, but also how a church uh, changes over time. Uh, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much. Thank you.